session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. Before I discuss the book of the week from last week, this is uh, the book for this week. It's called Prepared by Diane Tavener. Prepared, What Kids Need for a Fulfilled Life. And uh, it seems to be a book that's about education, but in a way for parents as well, about what we need to help kids get ready to live a good life. Uh, heard a lot of good things about it, but haven't started it yet, but look forward to reading it and sharing it with you on next Monday's show. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle. The Culture Code, The Secrets of Highly Successful Groups. And this was a fascinating book where uh, the author, Daniel Coyle, he really went deep and to try to understand what makes some groups succeed and what makes others not do so well. And what is it about those groups that do well that gives them a good group culture? And so a lot of times when we hear that word culture, we think it means your national or ethnic background, your Iranian culture, American culture. But it doesn't have to be that. Any group essentially can have a culture, a family can have a culture, even a couple, you can create a culture together which is in a way the norms and the way you do things. Um, And that can be embedded and affects everything that you do. So in the book, he starts off with an interesting story uh, or experiment, um, which was quite fascinating. But imagine if you were uh, heard that this was a task that was given to some kindergartners and also business school students. So they are given some time to try to build the tallest possible structure using the following items. 20 pieces of uncooked spaghetti, one yard of transparent tape, one yard of string, and one standard size marshmallow. And the contest had one rule, the marshmallow had to end up on top. And so the participants were asked to try to build the tallest structure they could with the marshmallow on top. And of course, you would think, well, business school students compared to kindergartners, of course, it's not even going to be a close contest. But shockingly, the kindergartners built uh, higher structures on average, an average of 26 inches, while the business school students, their structures averaged less than 10 inches. And even uh, compared to lawyers, they built slightly higher at 15 inches and CEOs 22 inches higher than the business school students, but still all lower than the kindergartners, which is quite remarkable. And so, of course, it's not that these kindergartners were smarter than the other groups. It was that they had some kind of better culture in the way that they were working together. And so that gives us an idea that 
It's not about the talent in your group or how smart the people are in your group. It's about the way you work together and the culture that has a big impact. And so that would, that's what this book was trying to get at is, well, what is it about um, these groups that have a good culture? And so the author, Daniel Coyle, he essentially boiled it down to three skills. And then the book goes into depth, uh, goes in depth with each one. The first one is building safety. Um, let me say the three, then I'll go into each one. So building safety is the first one, then sharing vulnerability. And the third one is establishing purpose. So building safety is, um, as it says here in the book, explores how signals of connection generate bonds of belonging and identity. So first to really work well together, we have to feel safe. We have to feel like we're part of the group. And so um, lots of times you might work somewhere and you might get the feeling that your job is always at risk. And even if we think of how some people think of managing, they think you should give people that feeling that at any moment their job can be lost, that it's this cutthroat type of environment, and we think that's going to breed success. But what they found is in a lot of these um, groups, cultures that were successful, people felt very safe, and they got lots of small, continuous feedback that let them know they were going to be safe in the group and be part of the group. Uh, and this includes being seen as an individual. So you're not just a number within the mix of people. Um, you are also valued, meaning that we're going to hear what you have to say. We often think of groups where the people, the higher ups get to say what's going on and everyone else just listens. And we think that's the best way to go forward, but that tends not to be the case. I, I was interested, as many of you know, I'm a big sports fan and he had a whole chapter essentially on the San, Anto San Antonio Spurs, a basketball team, and their coach, Greg Popovich. I've always actually thought he's probably the best coach of all time based on my own experience watching the game. Um, and seeing how he interacted with his players was quite interesting. He was very uh, honest with them, very open with them, but also he loved them. And that was quite interesting how he made sure that was felt. He wasn't just going to make you feel bad. He wanted to make sure you feel like you belong as well. And so he's very close to his players. He makes lots of uh, recommendations for them, things like here's where you should go to dinner. He'll make reservations for the players uh, and their wives to go out, things like that. But he's also very open and honest with them as well. And I thought that was uh, interesting to see his mentality where it wasn't just tough love, but there was the toughness as far as he was pushing his players. He expected a lot out of them, but he wanted a lot from them too. So here, uh, one of his assistant coaches says he'll deliver two things over and over. He'll tell you the truth with no BS, and then he'll love you to death. And I thought that was interesting, that love part, because often we think of leaders in a way that they have to be cold or detached from uh, whoever they're leading. They don't need to be connected. They need to be hard on them. And so I think that balance to me has always been interesting and um, trying to not see it as a dichotomy because sometimes we think it's either your tough love or soft love. And tough love is hard on you, going to make you maybe feel bad even in the process. And soft love is too soft and just says no matter what you do is okay. But there can be a blend of both where you are showing that you have high expectations and you don't just say that in a negative way. You say, I expect a lot out of you because I think you're great. I think you're wonderful and you can do well. And I also love you. It doesn't have to be one or the other where you can only do one thing. Um, so it was interesting to see his mentality. Also interesting for me, maybe many of you like me have been watching this documentary on 
ESPN about the Chicago Bulls, especially Michael Jordan. And especially last night in the episode that were shown, he was much more of the tough side um, where he was hard on his teammates and he was known for that, even called some negative things about the way he would approach his teammates. But it was interesting is in yesterday's show, he also mentioned there's nothing I ask of the players to do that I wouldn't do myself. And so I thought that was interesting. And that actually relates to, to the next topic I'll get into. So um, both both basketball, obviously, people, Greg Popovich, Michael Jordan, slightly different in their styles, I would say. But still, there's some takeaways that are probably similar. So that was interesting to see how he um, works with his team. He sees them as a family. We hear that a lot. But what you see in the book is that in these cultures at work, they genuinely do it. You feel it. It's not just something they say that we're like one family. They make you feel like you belong. So that first one is that safety gives you that feeling of belonging. The second one was uh, shared vulnerability. And so vulnerability involves taking risk, which can come up in different ways. Um, but one of the things I really liked was how he showed different people who were in positions of power and how they would share with the group their mistakes. They wouldn't hide behind this veneer of, uh, I'm, I know everything, I'm strong, I don't need any help, I don't make mistakes, quite the opposite. They would talk about mistakes they have made. Uh, and one of the, the leaders that was at a good uh, a group with good culture said something that that's one of the most powerful things a leader can say is that I really screwed up or I really messed that one up. And so this was surprising because I think a lot of times people think when people are looking up to you, when you're the, the center of some kind of group, you have to show some type of confidence and some type of almost infallibility that you never make a mistake. But actually, it seems quite clear that you need to do the opposite. You need to show your group that you too, you also make mistakes. Everyone will. And especially in most important tasks, we're going to make mistakes. It's the only way we improve. And so it was important for the leaders to exemplify this, to show that vulnerability, to make it easier for the rest of the group to be vulnerable as well. Um, also, this shared vulnerability comes up in types of meetings where people are very honest. So Pixar, many of you might know, has made so many good movies or successful movies. Almost every movie they make is very successful. But first of all, the leaders there will tell you that when the movies are getting made for a long time, they're not good. They're really bad. And he says, I don't say this in a humble way. They really aren't very good. And they go through these meetings called brain trusts, where people view parts of the movie and they give very honest feedback. And the feedback, it's not about, again, tough love saying something negative, but it's saying the reality of what you're seeing and also trying to help them to make it better. Um, so we see that lots of groups that have a good culture they have this open honestness. You can disagree with anyone. It doesn't matter who it is. If it's the CEO or someone low level, there's no type of um, rank in that sense that some people can't question others. Even at Google, I was talking about Google competing with um, some other companies, but that was something very important. Their culture was there was a way they all mixed together. They would play field hockey outside and you'd see the CEO playing with um, people who were low-level employees, and there was no difference between them. And that actually helped create a type of culture that was conducive to their success and giving them a sense of identity, but also shared vulnerability. That was quite interesting. So not something you might think of in a culture, 
but vulnerability was important. Also, um, with the Navy SEALs, who are super highly trained individuals in the U.S. military, and they experience a lot of hardships together in their trainings. And he discussed in the book, and people shared their experiences of having those experiences of hardship together. Some of their training was very difficult, trying to carry something I think was like a telephone pole, wooden log. That was a big part of their training that created this sense of shared vulnerability. They would go through it together. They would become what we talk about sometimes better or greater than the sum of their parts because you all join together and you're doing it for one another. And that can help contribute to, to your success and your, your uh, overall um, strength as a group is having that shared vulnerability. So interesting that vulnerability, which sometimes people think of as weakness because you're showing vulnerable parts, maybe something you made a mistake somewhere that you're not doing so well, actually leads to more strength. And we see this in groups. We also see this in relationships. The more you are vulnerable and open with one another, the closer you get and the more trust you build if you are vulnerable with each other. And so he actually shared how we usually think you trust and then you become vulnerable. But in a way, it's actually reverse. You are vulnerable. And I think especially in relationships, you do it in small steps. And that makes you closer. That builds trust. So that was quite interesting, too. So sharing vulnerability is the second one. And the last one is you have to have a purpose together. And so this is always important that whatever you're doing, you want to think of the why. To me, that's what that was about. Purpose is about why. Why are we this company? What are we doing? What are we selling? And so unfortunately, you see a lot of companies and people, their motive is just make money. And usually that's not the best and long lasting type of culture in general that's going to work. Um, but they, you see the healthier companies tend to have something bigger than that. There's a reason why they're doing what they're doing, and they believe in their philosophy. It's not just something they say once and then they go back to making money or something they say for a PR um, type of boost or to look good. They genuinely mean what they're doing. You see that in many of these successful companies is that there is a purpose there. And the purpose is also important because it gives us that why, but also as human beings, we are drawn to stories or we make meaning out of stories. So unless we see the story and try to understand um, somehow we're here and we're trying to get there, it's hard for us to get as motivated. But when you think about something and he called it, uh, it's called mental contrasting, where you are now, where you want to go, and what are the obstacles in the way that can lead to synergy and working together and even individually for you to want to get there in a better way. So the book, you know, as I mentioned, goes into different types of successful cultures from the Navy SEALs, Pixar, San Antonio Spurs, um, some different smaller companies I hadn't heard of, a bigger one, Zappos, and the leader of that company and what he does. And it was quite fascinating to see that oftentimes what we think of as a good group or what we think we need to be to be so strong and to have uh, no mistakes is not really going to work. We need to be open. We need to be candid. We need to be able to speak to one another about what's going on. That was something you saw in all these groups is that communication was something very easy for everyone to do. And it was done in short bursts very often, not in long lectures. And everyone was able to talk to each other. And so culture is definitely something you can feel. You've probably been, whether it's part of your work or family or other things, somewhere that feels toxic and somewhere that feels good. And so sometimes we don't know what is it quite 
uh, clearly that's making it good, what's making it toxic. And I thought this book did a really good job of getting into some of those um, factors that can affect good culture, that's going to promote success, and bad ones that tends not to work out. So that was the book, The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle. The Culture Code, The Secrets of Highly Successful Groups. And the book of the week for this week is Prepared, What Kids Need for a Fulfilled Life by Diane Taverner. Uh, you're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadid We will be right back. back. So in the first segment, I was talking about the book, The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle. And I thought so many things were interesting about the ways uh, we see healthy cultures and how they function and what works and what doesn't work. Because as I mentioned uh, in a few different ways in the last segment, we often think that when we're looking at a a place that's going to be successful, it has these leaders that are super strong and especially in different cultures, uh, background as far as cultures, let's say Iranian versus American, you see different types of standards. Especially in the Iranian culture, I feel at times there's too much of an emphasis on the leaders have to be infallible. The leaders have to be perfect. Um, they can't make mistakes. And that goes both ways. So the leaders themselves have to show themselves as infallible. I don't make any mistakes. And the Um, people who are in the organization have to follow them, never question them, and pretend and say that they're always right. And unfortunately, this usually does not end with good results. Um, I forgot which book it was by Malcolm Gladwell, but other people have talked about this, that we see this uh, happening in things like... um, flights, flying, and what can lead to car accidents or, or plane accidents. People who were in a culture where they felt like they couldn't challenge or question the lead captain, they found that those types of cultures were more likely to lead to accidents and crashes because sometimes someone notices something is not right, but they feel like they can't say anything. And we're talking about literally life and death situations. And so in the book, there was even this group uh, or a type of study on different groups who were trying to learn a new procedure for heart surgery. And it was expected that the most successful in general groups, the groups who had been um, around more, had more experience, they would learn this new procedure the fastest. But that wasn't the case. The groups that actually were more open in communication, those were the ones that did better. It wasn't that they had to have a top leader who was very good at things and teach everyone else. There was more of a group culture where not just the the surgeons, but even the staff were able to interact in a better way. And so we see a movement towards this where uh, people in the medical field and in other fields as well, they are encouraging feedback from everyone. So usually it's the surgeon dictates everything that's happening. And even if you notice something's wrong, you don't say anything to them. But this doesn't work. It leads to lots of mistakes, lots of things go wrong. And unfortunately, even it could be life or death or different types of situations end up being the result. So this means that as individuals as well, we can hopefully have this type of mindset that even though 
you hopefully will be good. You'll do lots of things well. We all make mistakes. And, and as parents, I think this is also good. I was hearing an interview with Daniel Coyle, and he brought up this topic um, about, as a parent, talking about mistakes that you make or that you've made. And this also is a cultural thing, but not just in the Iranian culture, but especially amongst us, where we think we as parents should never make mistakes. We should show our kids we're so smart, we're so strong, uh, everything we do is right in some way. And we have to try to flip this on its head to, to let our kids know, I make mistakes and you will make mistakes too, and that's okay. We grow through our mistakes. We get better because of our mistakes. And so um, you could be at dinner and share with your kids things that you have done wrong or made a mistake that day, and that's okay, um, and encourage them to do the same thing. Or even he recommended the, uh, this in the book that some leaders will do this. They'll say, what's something uh, I'm doing that you like as a leader? And also, what's something I'm not doing that you wish I would or I'm doing that you don't like that would make me a better leader for you? And that's quite remarkable because we usually don't try to open ourselves up to this kind of feedback to allow someone to potentially say something um, negative about what we're doing. We don't think we're supposed to do that. Parents too, they think, well, what do you mean? I'm being a great mom. I'm being a great dad. What, what do my kids have to say? Shouldn't they be happy? Shouldn't they be lucky? And so something related to that, um, you can do something really well, but it doesn't mean you're doing it perfectly. Meaning everyone who's been good. So I was talking about sports. Someone can have a really good game in basketball, but they still probably missed a few shots, maybe many shots and still had an amazing game. And so as a parent, you can do so many things right, but still every day, even there's things you either did wrong, made mistakes or that you can do better. You're trying to grow. You're not done growing. And so I think that growth mindset is very important. Uh, the growth mindset means that we recognize that we're growing, whatever the skill is, we're trying to develop it. We're not finished growing. We're not perfect at it. And it's not just something you're good at. You're not just a good parent or a bad parent. You are a parent who's trying to get better every day. And also the mindset that nothing is perfect. And so even very good things are going to be imperfect. And that's fine. That's okay. That's actually the way it's going to be. Because if we don't have that type of mindset, we are going to resist growing. We're going to resist getting better uh, at whatever it is that we are doing, whatever it is in life. So if you're a parent and you think you should be done growing as a parent, you're going to miss a lot of opportunities to grow and to connect to your children. So I invite parents to talk to their kids in this way. And it might be a conversation you'd be nervous about to ask your kids, what do I do as a mom or a dad that you like and you want me to keep doing or do more of? What's something about me as a mom or a dad that you don't like? And that's, that's the one we probably will be more nervous about. But I hope you will have that conversation with your kids to give them that space and as I talk about with these topics very often, it's not that just that conversation is going to change everything, but what you're hopefully doing is creating a type of dialogue, a type of communication that will allow for future conversations. Because essentially what you're telling your child is, you are allowed to tell me that I'm doing something you don't like. 
you are allowed to say, mom, dad, I don't like when you do this, when you say this, whatever the question might be, you are giving them that space to do that. And that is really, really powerful. And so I hope you will think about that when you're talking to your kids. And before you do that, think about having that conversation, because I do imagine it'll bring up some anxiety in you. What will my kids say? What will it feel like? What am I going to go through? Uh, am I giving them some opportunity to attack me? And that's not good. Now, what's interesting is when we think about that anxiety, I'm afraid to ask my child what he or she doesn't like about how I am parenting them, right? So we feel an anxiety. But what that means is that we're worried that they're going to tell us something that won't feel good, which I understand. But think about that. We're worried about them telling us something that they don't like or a way that we're hurting them. So is that more important or the feeling you have about hearing that feedback? It reminds me of when we're going to get a blood test, let's say, and I was actually just talking to someone about this, and you might be nervous about what are, what are the results going to be of this blood test. And we actually sometimes will put off going to see a doctor for that reason, because we're afraid to, to see that. And so you've got to ask yourself, am I going to let that anxiety win, meaning that because I'm afraid to see the results, I won't see what's actually there? Or do I want to see what's going on? to be able to do something about it, to actually be able to address whatever the issue is. So I hope you'll think about that with your kids. Let me ask them about what's going on, because what if I'm hurting them in some way? What if they feel like they can't tell me something? Um, what if they are actually trying to bring something up, but I never gave them that chance? So I hope parents will recognize that by being vulnerable, you're not being weak you are not saying something bad. Expressing and acknowledging vulnerability is actually a great strength. It's showing that you recognize that you're human, and by being human, you're imperfect, and you want to grow, and you want your child to know that too. And you can be a wonderful mom and a wonderful dad and recognize your vulnerability. Or I should say it more clearly that to be the best mom or dad you can be, you have to actually recognize your own faults and be open to hearing them. So I hope parents will take that seriously to actually have this conversation with their kids of saying, let me know how I can be a better mom or dad. And also, what do I do that you like? So you're getting that feedback. And then allow this to be a topic of conversation that continues. So that's for parents. But also in a relationship, the same thing goes. Uh, very often, husbands and wives, people in relationship, they don't share what they're feeling, especially when they're upset. When they don't feel good about something, we think we're not supposed to tell the other person because it's going to hurt their feelings. Uh, and vice versa, we're afraid to ask them because what if they say something I don't like? But here's the you know, newsflash. You are not a perfect boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, or wife. You are just not. And here's another newsflash. That's okay. You are not going to ever be and you're not supposed to be perfect. That's all right. But we should try to have the mindset of trying to grow to be better. So you can tell your husband, your wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever it is that you are in a relationship with, please let me know what I do that you like as your partner. But also let me know what are the things I don't do that either hurt you or the things I do that you don't like. And yes, 
might not feel good in the moment. You might have to brace yourself, but it can be room for growth, room for you to have a better relationship if you actually have that conversation with them. And something I tell partners, and it sounds cheesy in a way I know, but I really mean this, is that if we approach our relationship in the right way, you should be striving each day to be the best husband or wife you can be. When you're going to sleep at night and you reflect on your day, you can think, how could I have been a better partner to my husband or my wife today? What could I have done? Where are areas I could have done better? And I think that's an important reflection to have, but also it's important to ask them for their feedback and their advice. They can tell you, this felt good, this didn't feel good. I wish you did this more, or I wish you didn't do that. And this should be a regular conversation and topic in your relationship. Again, we have this mindset that we should never tell someone they're not doing good, we shouldn't offend them, we shouldn't make them feel bad, which also comes from the, the other side of that, which is um, if I'm a good husband or wife, I should never make a mistake. Of course you do things wrong, and of course you do things that are going to be hurtful. And of course, even if it's not that you're doing something so wrong, you can do it better. You know, if you're giving your loved one a massage, they're going to tell you this part feels more pain. This feels good. I like when you do it that way. Whatever it is that they can communicate to you, you probably will want to hear it. You're not going to just say, I'm just going to massage you this way and you better like it and let's have no feedback. You want to know what feels good to them, what they what doesn't feel good to them, to, to keep doing those things they like and to not do the things they don't like and see how you can improve it by communicating with each other. So we have to be open to receiving feedback. And the only way we can do that, of course, sometimes they might tell us, but we have to ask. And especially when it comes to relationships where there's a differential. So in a romantic relationship, I hope you will do that. But especially when you're a parent and you have children. I talked about this a bit last week too, but you don't want your children to feel like you're a dictator, that they can't you know, come to you or that you're going to just tell them what to do. But what we want to do is make them feel like, look, I am the parent, so I'm not saying you make it like there's no differential, but it's not that you can't tell me things that we can't communicate. I'm here to hear from you. I want to know what's going on. And so I did like um, in this book, The Culture Code, that Daniel Coyle, when he went into these different organizations, you would see these leaders and you think, you know, someone who's the head of Pixar, the coach of the San Antonio Spurs, the CEO of Zappos, they're going to have this mindset of, being so amazing and I'm so amazing. But what you saw is that they valued everyone and they showed that. And they also recognized their own vulnerability, mistakes and weaknesses and wanted the group to have that feeling that they can be open that way too. So I really do invite all the parents and also everyone just to have these types of conversations to let them know, hey, I want to know how I can be better as your parent, which shows also that you value that position. You value being able to be their parent or to be that husband or wife to whoever it is that you love. Let's go to our last commercial break, studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So during the commercial break, um, I, I'm doing the shows on Monday nights on Instagram Live as well. And so someone asked about fear, uh, fear and then they actually added fear of failing was really what they were um, talking about. So uh, that's a good question, you know, and it relates to what I was talking about in the previous segments discussing the book, The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle, and how we 
um, want to create a culture where we can feel okay to make mistakes, to be vulnerable, to um, share what we're going through and the things we experience. But of course, we have to be okay with failure, which is a, a tough thing to deal with, to make mistakes and to acknowledge them. And we often will come make this connection to self-esteem when it comes to um, failure, because when we are afraid to make any mistakes, it often is tied into this feeling that our worth is based on our performance, which is in that moment. So if I make a mistake right now, I'm worthless. But if I do well, um, I can be good, at least for that moment. But unfortunately, when we actually have that feeling, it's almost like rather than we feel good, it's like you avoid the inevitable or you avoid something really bad, which doesn't even feel that good. So if I'm just trying to make sure I don't look so bad, then what's going to happen is either I at least didn't look bad um, or I will look bad and that's going to be horrible. So it's a bad feeling. And so this is why it's so important. We talk about cultures in a company, but also as parents that you make your kids feel okay to make mistakes and you really have to mean it. And that means you have to be aware of the feedback you give them. Even um, it's so, uh, you know, scary to think of even compliments can cause harm, but sometimes our compliments can cause harm. You know, someone in the, the break said something very nice. They said, you are perfect, which is a nice thing. And I know they meant it in a nice way. And I kind of made a comment uh, about that. But really, that could be something dangerous to tell a kid, you're perfect. You're doing perfect. You are perfect. Because uh, it sounds nice for someone to say that to us, but actually that type of compliment comes with a lot of pressure. Because let's say even if they did perfect in that thing, let's say they had 10 problems, they got all 10 right, we know that they're not going to be uh, always do perfect. And they're not always going to do everything right. That's just part of being human. And so what we're doing is we're making them more afraid that if you make a mistake, you won't feel good or I won't give you that type of good feeling to you. And so we tie in their performance with their love. In a way, it feels like I love you because... You didn't make any mistakes. And so you don't want to give our kids that type of feedback. And so I mentioned the growth mindset, and that's related to this, this theme where you want to give your kids this feeling that whatever they're doing, it's because you are working hard that you did well. So we call that the growth mindset, not it's because you're so smart that you did well, because smart means it's just something in you. It's fixed. But growth means you worked hard, you can work hard. If you make a mistake, you just have to work harder next time. But the other mindset, if it's fixed, that means if you get a, a bad grade on a test, let's say, it's because you're not smart enough and that's all you can do. So we don't want to give our, our children that type of feedback. And again, we want to show them that their value is not just based on doing something really well. They have inherent value. You love your child, not because your child is perfect or good, um, or even when we say your child is so beautiful, um, your child is beautiful because that's your child. You just love your child. I was talking to a friend about this. You know, you have a baby and you love your baby and you say, I love my baby's nose, right? When you say you love your baby's nose, you're not saying because it's shaped so nice. It's because it's your baby's nose. You love your baby's nose, right? So if it was shaped differently, but that was your baby, you would love that nose too. And so I know it sounds maybe silly, but it shows that when we're 
loving someone inherently because of who they are. We see things about them, but we don't love them because of those things. We love them, and then so we love the things about them. So if your child has a beautiful voice, you'll love that beautiful voice, and you'll want to hear them sing. But if they didn't have a beautiful voice, it's not that you wouldn't love them. And so you want to make sure they get that message clearly from you that they're not loved because of some performance. They're not loved because of some, you know, appearance. They're loved for just being a human being, someone who deserves to be loved. And that is very important. And parents can sometimes feel like, no, I need to push my kids to become something. Uh, they need to work hard. They need to, you know, be successful. But what we really see is that when you give people that comfort, as was expressed in the book, they actually do better when they can feel okay, when they feel safe. And so you want to give your kids that same feeling that you are good. I love you no matter what. Do I want good for you? Of course. And I'm going to keep encouraging you to be the best version of yourself and to help you grow. But you are good and lovable just as you are. And unfortunately, most of us didn't get that message so clearly. And it's not a black and white thing, of course, but most of us didn't get this either at all, or in some ways it's missing, where we can feel like we're not good enough ourselves. We have to be something. We have to do something really well to be, to be good. And so when we have this fear of failure that was brought up, what it means is that we've learned that missing something, doing something wrong, is too big a risk. And so I've used a few sports analogies today, but it's like if you're playing basketball and you're so afraid to miss a shot, you never take the shots because you're afraid to miss. So it can feel safer. You can't miss a shot if you don't take it. But of course, you can never make a shot if you never take a shot either. And so when you are living your life, if you live your life to avoid failures, that also just means you're going to avoid trying lots of things because uh, anything that's challenging or difficult or might have a risk of not working out, that fear of failure will probably make that decision for you. So rather than going for it, you're not going to go for it. So we have to try to um, reduce the impact of failing. And so, of course, failing doesn't feel good when you make a mistake you likely don't feel good in that moment, or especially if you really try for something and it doesn't go well, of course you're not going to feel good. And so anyone who listens to me knows that I don't think you should avoid your feelings or pretend like they're not there. It's understandable that when you try something, you're going to feel bad when it doesn't work out. But it's recognizing that it doesn't mean you are bad. That's the hard part to differentiate for many people is, did I make a mistake or am I bad myself? And so we have to try to be aware of that distinction. I'm starting to lose my voice a little bit. <clears throat> Let's see if I can keep going, though. So we have to try to make that distinction, at least within ourselves, that I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to lose my voice <laughs> near the end of my show. But I'll hopefully be able to, to still speak for the rest of the show. But that doesn't mean I'm bad. And so you see many people in life... If you're going with the fear of failure, they don't try something new because that's always risky. And so if they don't try something new, they also don't get to try something or get to a point that feels very exciting for them. 
And so the fear of failure, it's not something we're going to make disappear. Um, the original question was about how do we get rid of fear? I read it, or that's how it was written at first. We're never going to get rid of our feelings. And so it's not that you're never going to dislike failing or making a mistake, but we can make a huge difference in how much it affects us and also the story we tell ourselves. Because for many people, when they, they fail at something, they think that's telling them about themselves. You are not good. You are not good enough to do this thing. But we can shift that narrative. And as I mentioned in the book, we're very about talk about the book. We are very much um, affected by how we look at ourselves. But you can look or how we look at things through stories. But if you tell yourself, this is part of my journey, that's a very different experience than when you say, it's because I'm not good enough. Excuse me. So if we recognize part of your story will have these mistakes, it'll have setbacks. And that's why I sometimes like to look at someone's career. And we talk about sometimes, you know, you have to have bad experiences to understand the good or to realize the good. And there's truth to that. But I also like to see when people fail. And I've mentioned the documentary a few times today with Michael Jordan talking about, um, his uh, his career, and you see parts where he failed. And yesterday they showed this, when he came back to basketball and he uh, joined the Bulls or rejoined the Bulls and they lost in the playoffs to the Orlando Magic. And I thought that was such a powerful moment to see him fail after being successful too. So he had failed before, and then now he was coming back and failed, and you saw how it motivated him to be better, to work hard. So he didn't take that, oh, I failed, that means I'm not good anymore. I failed, I should give up. He said, or you could see his mindset was, I failed, let me work harder. And so uh, his trainer said that usually, you know, when the season ends, they take a little bit of time off and then they start working out again. But he asked them, when do you want to start working out? And he said, tomorrow, tomorrow morning. And he started the next day. And so that failure fueled him, not because... Um, he thought he was bad, but because he realized, I want to push harder. And, and to me, that's even why the feeling can be good sometimes, even that negative to be like, this didn't feel good, that it didn't go well. I want to learn from it and to work harder to do better. And so if we recognize that when we have these types of whatever you want to call them, failures, obstacles, challenges, it doesn't mean you're done. It just means you've it's some type of block and that block means you can keep going or you can give up but hopefully you will keep going when you hit those types of things and realize you know what i can keep going forward now i'm getting a question on top of that from the same person what if you find yourself um, not satisfied with your achievements now i mean you're asking me if that's a failure if you're not satisfied with your achievements a lot of times we're not grateful for what we've done um, but also we can be comparing ourselves to some standard. Sometimes that standard is someone who exists, or sometimes it's a standard we've created for ourselves. I need to be this good. Uh, so I'll work with people at times. They say, yeah, I've done this, but I could have done it in two years less time. Or I've done this, but you know, if I actually just made this decision differently, I would have actually been here even higher than I am. And so this does relate to fear of failure 
and perfectionism, which can be very related. But we can look at what we've done and say, if there's been any mistakes, then I did it wrong because it could have been better. And so the truth of it is all of us could have done better in everything we've done. Again, so it's going back to the mindset of perfect is the enemy of good. Sometimes we think if something has to be perfect, then even we won't do something good or we won't be our best. Um, but unfortunately, that's going to get in the way of actually doing better and doing the best we can do. So we can try to recognize that whatever we've done, um, that's good and be grateful for it. And sometimes I like to think of, you know, when they say, do you see the glass as half full or half empty? And I always say both. What that means is, let's say you're talking about your achievements, you recognize the good that is there. And that's the half full part. You're grateful for what you've done. You can be proud of what you've done. But the half empty part means you see your room for growth. You see that I can keep doing better. And that's actually exciting. It doesn't mean you're bad today, but it means you know that you can keep going and keep growing. And without growth, really, we feel like we're dying. We, we lose that good feeling of, of vitality that we really want. So if we can recognize that, recognize that it's actually my moment of growth, whatever it is um, that I'm feeling now, that can be a good feeling. And so um, I would recommend to the person who asked the question, but for all of us really to be aware of that distinction, that when you make something doesn't go well, first of all, you can actually acknowledge a few things. One is I pushed myself somewhere that I hadn't before or that I didn't know I could do that I actually couldn't quite make it. And that's okay. First of all, that's a good step that I tried something a little bit harder. But secondly, um, it also means that this is somewhere where I can learn from what has happened. Everything we go through can be a, a learning experience. And no matter what you go through, it doesn't mean you are bad. Something didn't go the way you wanted it to go. And that's okay. And that's going to happen. So the fear of failure, unfortunately, it gets in the way of so much. Because all of us probably, if we weren't afraid of failing, we would try so many more things. We would... Uh, push ourselves in new ways. We would, um, you know, uh, whatever it might be, go in a new direction, try a new skill, a new talent, see what we can do. But because we're afraid to fail, because we've been told it's bad, and in different families you get different messages about this, we feel that we should avoid making mistakes because mistakes are the bad thing. But actually mistakes should not be our enemy. Mistakes should be our um, method for growing. When you make mistakes, you actually learn from them. Even if you're studying, they find that when you make a mistake and then you see that right answer, you're more likely to then learn that information. So mistakes are actually good things. They're not something bad, but we have to try to shift our mindset about that. We've reached the end of tonight's show. The book of the week, again, is Prepared by Diane Taverner. I'll talk about that on next Monday's show. Thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delakwi. Have a wonderful night.